Chapter 26 is psychiatric emergencies. So an introduction. You cannot always see a psychiatric issue. That's the patient's thoughts, perceptions, and feelings that's going on. The care you give patients with behavioral emergencies, though, can save lives just as the care you provide for physical problems. Being there, talking to them, encouraging them to seek help can go a long way and can actually save lives. And your assessment is important for the continuing care of the patient as well. So psychiatric disorder and emergencies. A psychiatric disorder is an abnormal mental condition that impacts one's thoughts, moods, perceptions, orientation, or memory that impairs judgments, behaviors, recognition of reality, or the ability to perform activities of daily living. So again, a very kind of broad, generic description. A psychiatric emergency is behavior that is unacceptable or intolerable to the patient or someone else. A psychiatric emergency includes things like abnormal behavior, is a threat to themselves or other, or shows a rapid change in cognition. So if we have somebody that's having behavioral changes, we have to try to determine, well, is this just a psychiatric change in their behavior, or is there a physical change, a medical condition that's going on that's causing that change in behavior? So again, behavioral changes has many different causes. And we should always consider that the apparent behavioral problem may have a physical cause. So we need to work our way through some of these problems before we just solely write it off as psychiatric because it may be something else going on and we're just assuming it's a psychiatric problem. So things like changes in behavior, we need to check for hypoglycemia, make sure the patient's oxygenating very well, and check for any indications of a stroke or a brain injury, infections, drug or alcohol poisonings, or hyper or hypothermia. Medical conditions that commonly produce psychiatric symptoms. We can use the acronym MENDA-MIND. Metabolic cause, electrical, including seizures, nutritional, thymine folate deficiencies, anemia, drugs or toxins, street medical drugs, lead, arterial, talking about strokes or TIAs. Second M is mechanical, brain injury. Uh, subdural, epidural hematomas, eyes infections, N is neoplastic, tumors, and D is degenerative, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, MS, etc. And that Mindemon uh, was created by James Knoll from the Psychiatric ER Survival Guide. So we're going to do our mental status exam, things that we're going to look at during our general appearance, look at their general appearance and their demeanor, look at their grooming. Does it look like they are taking care of themselves, they're dressed in clean clothing, etc.? Their build, their behavior, their speech, are they having slurring speech, may indicate intoxication, may indicate uh, strokes, bizarre responses, meaningless or unrelated words. Skin, 
skin color, temperature, condition, their posture or gait, any unusual movements, muscle twitching, spasms, orientation, are they alert to person, place, time, and event? If they are, then they are AAO times four. Memory, check their memory. Can the patient recall events? Can they think abstractively? Their awareness, are they aware of their surroundings? Look at their body language. Do they have a threatening gestures or expressions where we feel like they may become violent with us? Patients with psychiatric disorders can have dystonia, which is a movement disorder that causes involuntary contractions of muscles, resulting in twisting, repetitive movement. And there's higher instances of dystonia in patients that have a history of schizophrenia. The patient may also have tardive dyskinesia, which is involuntary movement or muscle twitches. Perceptions and thought content. Is there, do they have organized thoughts? Are they any indications that they could be hallucinating, having delusions, phobias? Are they able to stay on topic? Are they having rapid shifts in the topic? And are they just constantly repeating words? Their mood and affect, normal mood. Are they angry? Do they have what appears to be euphoria, irritability? What's their affect? Do they have a restricted or a flat affect, not showing much emotion? Again, or are they having rapid shifts in emotion? Their judgment, are they making rational, do they have rational decision-making, insight into their decisions? Things to be on the lookout that are going to indicate a physical cause. If there's a sudden, acute, rapid onset of symptoms, they are having memory loss or impairment. Again, that tends to be more of a physical cause versus a psychiatric cause. Pupillary changes, psychiatric disorders won't mess with pupils, excessive salivation, incontinence, or unusual odors of the breath, again, may indicate things like intoxication or poisonings, et cetera. Clues that this is not caused by a physical cause. If they're having hallucinations, for the most part, it's probably going to be psychiatric unless there's drugs involved. Visual, auditory, sensation, smells, taste. Do your, your history and physical exam. Can help determine whether the patient's condition is psychiatric in nature. Ask about previous psych history. Uh, what type of medical problems do they have? What medications that they take? The patient who experiences his first psychotic break might begin hallucinating, having delusions, resulting from mental decompensation, obtain history from family and friends, if unattainable, from the patient. And again, if there's any doubt in your mind, go ahead and check a BGL just to rule that out as a cause for the bizarre behavior. Moving on to some specific psychiatric problems. Going to have patients going to have anxiety disorders. Anxiety is a state of uneasiness about impending problems, 
characterized by agitation, restlessness. Patient, again, just feels anxious, can't calm down. And anxiety can cause panic attacks, is a discrete period of intense fear or discomfort. During an anxiety attack, your body is flooded with epinephrine. So fast heart rate, fast breathing, only usually lasts about 10 minutes or less. And during an anxiety attack, patients can have heart palpitations, tachycardia, tachypnea, sweating, any other things that can be present with the release of epinephrine. Patients can also have phobias. Phobia is an irrational fear triggered by a specific object or event. Arachnophobia is an irrational fear of spiders. One type of phobia that is of concern to us is if the patient has agoraphobia, which is a fear of leaving the safety of one's own home. They're gonna be terrified to go to leave their house. They're not gonna wanna go to the hospital. It's difficult for EMS since we respond to their homes and trying to remove them from their homes. And just the thought of leaving the home can cause a panic uh, attack with the same signs and symptoms that we've just talked about. Another psychiatric disorder is bipolar. Changes in mood from very high to very low, and it's, it's like a roller coaster. They're in a really, really good mood, or they're in a really bad mood, depressed. There's a manic phase, involves abnormally elevated, expansive, irritable mood that lasts more than one week. Then go through a hypomania. Hypomania is a milder form of the manic phase that clearly is different from a normal mood, lasts longer than four days. And then the opposite end of the spectrum, they have depression. Phase involves elevated mood, alterates with periods of normal or depressed mood in which the person loses interest in things that were once enjoyable. And again, it's kind of like a roller coaster. They're extremely happy one day doing a lot of stuff. And then a week later, they're extremely depressed, uh, not interested in anything. Depression, feeling a sadness, worthlessness, discouragement. They have that flat effect, doesn't show much emotions, withdrawal, crime, fatigue, or agitation. They can have changes in appetite or sleeping. They may have insomnia, not sleeping much at all, or the opposite end where they're sleeping all the time. They have feelings of guilt, indecision. And to be diagnosed with depression, they have to be have two of these symptoms at the same time for at least a two-week period. The big concern with us in dealing with depression is that it is a leading factor in suicides. Neurocognitive disorders replaces the term dementia, refers to those disorders that involve impairment of the neurons of the brain, includes memory disorders, personality changes, and impaired reasoning. Patients can suffer from agitated delirium, more commonly referred to as excited delirium. It's a neurocognitive disorder. It's characterized by unusual strength or stamina, a very high tolerance to pain, agitation, hostility, frenzied and bizarre behavior, hot, diaphoretic skin, 
and unusual speech. And during excited delirium, they are just abnormally aggressive, very violent. And it seems like they have that unusual strength and stamina and do, does not feel pain. Again, this can be caused by neurocognitive disorder. We also see this pretty frequently with drug use as well. Cocaine, hallucinogens, methamphetamines, synthetic marijuanas, bath salts, etc. And again, excited delirium, again, is what we've already talked about, but it can also result in sudden cardiac arrest. And during the excited delirium, the patient is very violent, agitated, and a potential danger to themselves or to you. Schizophrenia is a chronic mental illness in which a patient does not return to his pre-morbid level of functioning. Schizophrenia causes distortions of speech and thought. Patients can suffer from delusions, hallucinations, social withdrawal, catatonic behavior, lack of emotional expressiveness. A lot of schizophrenics also have paranoia, exaggerated or unwarranted mistrust and suspicion of others. They think somebody's out to get them. Somebody's constantly following them. The government's trying to prosecute them. Again, elaborate delusions of persecution. These patients may be aloof, hypersensitive, argumentative. And because of that paranoia, they think somebody's out to get them. It can be their behavior can be unpredictable and aggressive as well. Psychosis is any mental state in which the patient is out of touch with reality, where the patient lives in their own reality. Can manifest through delusions hallucinations, disorganized speech or behavior, loose associations, and mind-altering drugs can cause psychosis in our patients as well. Substance use and addictive disorders, individual use of drugs and alcohol results in clinically significant impairment distress, and those common substances we've talked about, alcohol, I don't see how caffeine is on that list, but apparently it is. Cannabis, hallucinogens, inhalants, opiates, sedatives, hypnotics, uh, stimulants, tobacco. And maybe incompetent to make medical decisions. And that's gonna be a big concern is if the patient's not wanting to go to the hospital, we have to ensure that they do have the mental capacity to uh, refuse our services. And if they don't, we may need to involve law enforcement. Trauma and stressor-related disorders. Trauma is defined as a deeply distressing or disturbing experience. Includes things like PTSD. Anyone has the potential to experience trauma. This includes EMTs. Again, during this job, you're going to see a lot of things that we shouldn't have to see very disturbing scenes. Uh, it may get to you. Trauma that is not dealt with appropriately does has the potential to develop PTSD. 
And we'll talk more about PTSD once we get into special patient populations. But it is a condition of persistent mental or emotional stress occurring because of an injury or severe psychological shock. Again, we'll talk more about this once we get into special patient populations. Psych patients can, can also suffer from extrapyramidal syndrome caused by dopamine blockade or depletion in the brain. And this extrapyramidal syndrome causes involuntary muscle movement. What causes extrapyramidal syndrome is often the psychiatric medications that the patients are taking. That's a side effect. And there are several yin medications that cause movement disorder. Violence. Patients with psych psychiatric emergencies may express their inability to handle the pressures they feel through violent acts. And that's going to be a concern of ours. We have to ensure that they are, it is safe for us to talk and to deal with the patients. This violence may be directed towards themselves. They're wanting to harm themselves towards others, and that those others do include us. So again, caution has to be utilized to protect yourself, your patient, and others on scene. <clears throat> Suicide. Suicide is defined as any willful act designed to end one's own life. It's the eighth leading cause of death in the U.S. among males. The most common successful suicide attempt is accomplished with firearms. And the most common unsuccessful attempts of suicide involves uh, the ingestion of drugs and slicing of the wrists. And this is a very important statistic for us to remember. At least half of all people who successfully commit suicide have attempted it previously. So if we run on a patient that has a suicide attempt and we don't think it was a serious attempt, very minor superficial cuts, they tried to overdose themselves on something that's probably not going to kill them or they didn't take enough of it, we still treat that very seriously because, again, because of that statistic right there. Again, we can get them the help they need now, hopefully prevent them from having a successful attempt in the future. Most males choose a violent act as with a gun, uh, while most women attempt a less painful and less disfigurement method, such as overdosing, slicing of the wrists. Most common methods, again, include self-inflicted gunshot wounds, GSWs, hangings, ingestions of poisons or drugs, carbon monoxide poisoning, leave their car in the garage running, <clears throat> or attach a garden hose to the tailpipe, lead it into the cab. Many attempts, again, are cries for help or means of emotional release, things like cutting, minor attempts, threats, etc. So document statements uh, by the suicide attempt patients, what they tell you, why they wanted to do it, stuff like that. If there's a suicide note, document what the suicide note states, why they tried to kill themselves, and any other evidence of suicidal attempts in this in at the scene. <clears throat> and 
suicide attempts must be reported to local law enforcement. <clears throat> and there are risk factors and potential signs of impending suicide as well. So suicide risk factors, histories, patients that have a history of mental illness are more prone to commit suicide. Again, if they've had a previous attempt, they're likely going to, or they could possibly try again. There's a family history of suicide, history of physical, mental, or sexual abuse. If they have a feeling of hopelessness, depression, feeling of isolation, a recent loss of a loved one. If there's a local epidemic of suicide, somebody at a, uh, especially kiddos, somebody at a high school killed themselves, all their friends heard about it, and that tends to lead to more people attempting to kill themselves, kids killing themselves. Patients that have chronic pain or have a terminal illness. Violence to others, early signs that a person has lost control may become violent towards us. They have nervous pacing, shouting, they're threatening, cursing. I, I don't really agree with that too much. Depends on how they're cursing. I cuss all the time and I'm not very violent. Throwing objects, if their body language clenched teeth and or clenched fists. Mini assessment for psychiatric emergencies, the mental status exam can provide you with an indication that you may be dealing with a psychiatric emergency. Our role is not to diagnose what type of psychiatric problem the patient is having, is having but we do need to look for immediate risks to make sure that we are protected, the patient's not going to become violent. And we still do a normal assessment looking for things that could be life-threatening towards the patient. One thing we're going to be on the lookout for is suicidal ideations, thoughts of suicide. So when we're talking to these patients, we're asking the questions, we need to be straightforward and direct with them. The patients being depressed, we need to flat out ask them, are you having thoughts of killing yourself? If they answer yes, okay, do you have a plan? Yes, okay, how would you do it if you were going to kill yourself? Then... We ask them, well, okay, do you have the means that you would use to follow your plan? If they say they're going to shoot themselves, we'll ask them, do you have the means? Do you have that gun? Hangings, ropes, drugs, et cetera. Ask them, how likely do you think you're going to carry out your plans and what stopped you from killing yourself? Homicidal ideations, they were wanting to kill somebody else. Again, uh, be direct up forward, ask them the same questions. Follow the same formulas for suicidal ideations, but be alert that early signs of potential violence to others while assessing as well. Are you having thoughts of killing somebody? Who is that person? Why? Have you ever have you thought about how to kill him or her? Do you have access to the means or weapon? How likely are you to follow through with that act? And again, what stopped you from following through? Need for law enforcement. Contact law enforcement in situations of suicide or homicidal ideations. We need them involved. 
So remember, just because somebody is suicidal, if they're conscious alert when oriented, for us as EMS in the state of Texas anyway, they still have the right to refuse care from us. So we can't force a suicidal patient to go to the hospital. Now, with that being said, we don't need to leave them alone. Our role, if they're refusing, is law enforcement is going to have to handle it from there. So law enforcement can force a patient transported when necessary. If they're a danger to themselves or a danger to others. So again, somebody's not wanting to go to the hospital with us, they're suicidal or saying they're suicidal. We hang around on scene, continue to talk to them, wait for law enforcement to get on scene. Once law enforcement's on scene, we explain the situation to them. They're going to talk to the patient. And at that point, they could place the patient under an emergency detention and then force that patient to go with us to the hospital. But again, it's law enforcement's decision to force the patient to go to the hospital against their will if they have the capacity to refuse. And again, we call it an emergency detention here. Other places call it an application for emergency admission or a pink slip. So some basic principles when dealing with a psychiatric patient. We just need to note that every person has limitations. We don't need to look down on somebody because they're dealing with a psychiatric problem. Everybody has the right to their feelings. Each person has the ability to cope. Uh, better or more than what they might think. Everyone feels some emotional disturbance when involved in a disaster or when injured. Emotional injuries can be as real as physical injuries. Just because we can't see them doesn't mean they're not there. People who have been through a crisis do not just get better. It does require treatment, just like a physical problem as well. And cultural differences have special meanings and behavioral emergencies as well. Some cultures look down on somebody seeking counseling, psychiatric help, etc. So techniques for treating psychiatric patients. We want to approach the patient slowly. Just like any other patient, we engage in active listening. We want the patient to do the vast majority of the talking. Be supportive of the patient, empathetic, put yourself in their shoes, limit interruptions in the interview. Again, the patient should do the majority of the talking and speak in a calm, reassuring voice. We want to maintain a comfortable distance. Try to get the patient to cooperate with us. Again, build that rapport, get that patient to trust you, let them know that we're here to help. Maintain good eye contact. <clears throat> Be careful making any quick movements. Respond honestly to the patient. If we don't know, it's okay to tell them I'm, I'm not sure. And never threaten or argue with the patient as well. Never lie. If the patient is hallucinating, don't play along with the visual or auditory disturbances. They point out, do you see that big monster coming at me? Don't say, yeah, man, I see it. You better hide. Again, we don't play along with it. No, I don't see it. I think you're hallucinating. Just try to calm down. We're here to help you. If possible, involve trusted family members. They may help gain cooperation. Be prepared to spend time on the scene. We're not worried about 10-minute, 20-minute scene times with these type of patients, and it may take a little time. 
and suicidal homicidal patients or those that are acting bizarrely never leave the patient alone. Again, they may use that opportunity to get weapons or to do something to harm themselves. We don't want to restrain a patient unless we absolutely have to. The only reason we can restrain a patient is they're an immediate threat to us or to themselves. If restraints are used, local law enforcement should be called, they have to be called, but if they're on scene, have them help us. They have a lot more training in restraining people. Some of these patients may not be in the right mindset to make a decision. Making them or asking them to make a decision again just may cause more psychiatric problems. Gather the patient to engage in motor activity, simple tasks to help them keep their mind off other items. Maintain their privacy and dignity. If there's a crowd gathered around, try to get the crowd separated or removed if we can't. Move the patient back to the truck if we can. Have a pre-planned and clear escape route or an exit. Look for the exits going through the residence. Don't let anybody stand between you and the exit path in case things do turn south we can get out of there quickly. So our assessment-based approach for psychiatric emergencies. Start with your scene size up. Behavioral emergencies can be unpredictable, volatile. Again, if we know what's a dangerous situation, don't enter the scene until law enforcement tells us that they've cleared the scene. And be aware of dangers associated with a patient's choice and mechanism of suicide. Again. Guns may still be on scene, knives, weapons. If they're using carbon monoxide to try to kill themselves, that entire residence may be filled with carbon monoxide when we get on scene. Locate the patient. Try to determine where the patient is before entering the scene. Ask bystanders that are on scene. Again, try to get a lay of the land before we just rush in there blindly. As we're approaching the residence or the building, look for objects that could possibly be used as weapons. Make sure that we're keeping the patient away from those potential weapons. Scan for items that could be used in a suicide attempt. And there may be multiple patients. Again, that whole house may be filled with carbon monoxide. One patient's trying to kill themselves, but she just gave carbon or he gave carbon monoxide poisoning to the rest of the family. So visually locate the patient. Again, we're looking for any weapons. They're using the side of the building as cover. We approach, notice, yeah, he's got a pipe. He's obviously pissed off. He's a big guy. I'm going to stand back, have some protection, get on the phone or the radio, call and tag to request law enforcement. Talk to him from a distance. Primary assessment, formulate general impression, mental status, ABCs. If they did cut themselves or have some type of trauma and they have active bleeding during that suicide attempt, go ahead and take steps to immediately control the bleeding, assess for shock. Secondary assessment, history, should always be polite, respectful to the patient. We need to respect the patient's privacy, use active listening. Again, patients should be doing the majority of the talking, so use open-ended questions whenever possible. Assess intellectual function, just talking. We can get a lot of this from just talking and having a conversation with our patients. Orientation, memory, 
concentration, their judgment, thought content, their language. Is it normal? Is it bizarre? And just their overall mood. Do they seem depressed? Do they seem aggravated? Secondary assessment for suicidal patients. Again, our biggest concern, acute concern at this time is what do they do to try to kill themselves? And is there anything that we can treat? Because of medical injuries or conditions is going to be our main concern. Trauma, stop bleeding, control bleeding, treated as poisonings if they try to overdose. Accept the patient's complaints and feelings. And we never trust rapid recoveries. Patient says, yeah, I was thinking about killing myself. I started cutting my wrist. Then I realized this was stupid and I didn't want to do it anymore. I'm fine. I don't need to go to the hospital. That's a rapid recovery. Patient is probably just telling, that, well, telling us what we want to hear so we don't force them to go to the hospital. Never show disgust or horror. Again, we want the patients to trust us. And don't deny the suicide attempt to occur. Don't tell them how that's, what you, you try to do? I try to cut my wrist. We look and it's just a very superficial cut. Don't deny that was an attempt. Uh, are you sure that was a suicide attempt? That doesn't look like you were trying very hard. Don't do things like that. Again, it may be just a cry for help. <clears throat> and don't try to shock the patient out of the suicide act. Don't try to make them feel guilty. Shock them to try to prevent them from doing that again. That's not our role. Recognize they're in trouble. Get them to the proper resources that they need. For violent patients, take history, look at patient's posture, the main indications they may become violent, listen, monitor that patient's physical activity, always have that suspicion that they could attack, be firm and clear with our instructions to them. And if they are immediate risk to us, prepare to use restraints, but only if it is necessary. Some symptoms psychiatric emergency can include fear, anxiety, confusion, behavioral changes, anger, mania, and depression, withdrawal, loss of contact with reality, sleeplessness, changes in appetite, loss of sex drive, constipation, and crying as well. Care for psychiatric. There's nothing we can do for a true psychiatric emergency. Supportive measures, build that rapport, talk to our patients, transport them to a hospital that has psychiatric resources. Safety, our safety is still going to be most important. Again, we do want to do assessment, talk to the patient, make sure that they did not do anything to try to harm themselves. If they do, we're going to have to treat that as well. Calm the patient. Again, we should stay with the patient at all times. If needed to protect yourself or others or the patient from harm, then we may have to use restraints. But again, that's last-ditch effort. A patient that's suicidal but is cooperating with us, agrees to go to the hospital, they don't need to be restrained because they're wanting to get help. We can also contact paramedic backup. All we can use types of restraints at the basic level is physical restraints. We're going to tie the patient down. Paramedics can tie the patient down and give them drugs to make them stop fighting. And again, transport the patient to a facility that can get them to psychiatric help. Reassessment. Reassess is warranted by the patient's condition. Continue to calm 
reassure the patient throughout transport. And again, just be there and talk to them. So if we have to restrain a patient, again, we can only do this as if we believe the patient is a danger to himself or others, an immediate danger. And again, if we're going to restrain, law enforcement needs to be contacted. They may not get there in time to help us, but we need to re request them. <clears throat> only if they're a danger to themselves or others, we do not use uh, hard restraints. We only use soft restraints. So we don't use handcuffs unless specifically trained or allowed to by medical direction. Now, if law enforcement's on scene and two cops are the ones restraining them to force them to go, they're going to use handcuffs. Handcuffs. That's their decision. And once they're in cuffs, that patient is their responsibility. So if PD puts the cuffs on, they're probably not going to take them off. We, can, we can't force them and shouldn't force them to take the cuffs off. But if we're the ones restraining them, we're going to use soft restraints. Seek medical direction or follow your local protocols. And very important, and we've talked about this before, we never restrain a patient prone. We tie them down, it is supine on their backs. Gather enough people to overpower the patient before you attempt the restraint. Need at least minimum four, one person for each extremity when we approach them. Plan your activities before you attempt the restraint. Make sure all the responders are on the same page. We can only use as much force needed to accomplish the restraint. Anything above that, it would be excessive force, and we can be prosecuted criminally or civilly for using excessive force on a patient to restrain them. Estimate the range of motions of the arms and legs, just trying to protect ourselves from getting hit. After you made the decision to restrain the patient, act quickly. The longer we go, the probably more violent uh, it's going to become, more dangerous. One rescuer should talk to the patient throughout the entire time, the restraining process, pleading with them, talking to them, hey man, don't relax or don't fight us, just relax, we're not going to hurt you. And kind of just being there talking to them. Again, at a bare minimum, we need four rescuers, one for each extremity. And secure the patient with equipment approved by the medical direction director. Uh, most ambulances do carry commercial soft restraints on their trucks that we use to secure a patient. But you can also use curlicks, triangular bandages, whatever your medical director allows. Again, always in a supine position to the stretcher, soft straps, curlicks, triangular bandages may be acceptable. We have to ensure that we are not cutting off circulation by tying them down so we continuously have to monitor distal pulses and cap refill on the extremity that is tied down. If the patient's spitting on us, we can cover their face with a disposable surgical mask or throw them on a non-rebreather as well. Uh, just reassess the airway and breathing frequently. And for us, once we apply the restraints to somebody, we do not remove them until we get to the hospital and then it's the hospital's decision whether they remain tied up or not. Again, patient may, okay, I'm done fighting. I'm not going to fight you anymore. Just untie me. They're just using that opportunity. Once we do untie them, now they start fighting again. So once they're restrained, they stay restrained throughout the entirety of the transport. So again, they're going to make the decision. They're going to restrain this patient. We're going to talk to the patient, let them know that we're here to help. Just cooperate with us. We're not here to hurt you. 
And then when it's time for the restraint, at least four rescuers, each one for each extremity, they're going to gracefully lift him up and gently place him on the ground. That should be the goal. It may not work that way, but again, we should intentionally slam the dude to the ground. Place him on the stretcher, supine, never prone, and then tie him down to the rails of the stretcher, the frame of the stretcher. We can also possibly pull their arms across their chest and restrain that's just limiting the motion even more. We just wanna be careful that we don't pull it too tight where, where we are restricting their breathing. If we're restraining somebody, we do have to have, uh, or we're dealing with psychiatric, there may be some legal considerations that we have to consider. Again, consent is gonna be a big one. Again, if the patient's unresponsive or not competent or confused, they can't consent or refuse care. So we can treat them under implied consent. It may be difficult to apply in the case of a patient suffering from a psychiatric emergency. Again, just involve law enforcement if there's any doubt or contact med control. Patient is able to answer all of her questions, but there is something seriously going on. They don't appear totally oriented or whatever the case may be. But again, pass that buck off to the medical director or uh, a doctor. Refusal of care. Remember, again, competent patients can refuse care. We can't force them to go against their will if they have the capacity to refuse. Some situations, though, patient threatens to harm themselves or others, you may be able to transport without consent. Again, in Texas, that's not our decision to force them to go against their will. Law enforcement has to be the one that makes that decision. So again, if they're refusing, but they're suicidal, stay with the patient, don't just leave, unless it becomes dangerous and we have to leave. Contact law enforcement, law enforcement gets on scene, let them make the decision whether to place them under an ED. Document situation, document what the patient says or family says, use direct quotes whenever possible. And again, we have to involve law enforcement and follow your protocols. Again, if we're restraining a patient, we have to, we're gonna use force, we have to use reasonable force, just like the same standard that law enforcement is held to. Reasonable force is the minimum amount of force required to keep the patient from injuring himself or others. So if we're restraining them, it's the minimum amount of force needed to restrain the patient. Any additional force above that minimum amount of force that is required, which is an imaginary level, is going to be considered excessive force. We're trying to restrain the patient. Patient's no real danger, but we're just getting tired of him not cooperating, so I'll reach up and punch the dude in the face. Definitely excessive force. The amount of force depends on the situation. Again, there's no textbook definition. Every patient, this is what we consider reasonable. Again, it's going to be very dependent on the situation. There may be situations where it is perfectly acceptable to reach up and punch a patient in the face. Again, it's very dependent on the situation. Again, that's typically why we want to involve law enforcement. They have more training on restraining patients. And not only that, they're going to be there as a witness for us to, to, to kind of back, their, back us up as well. Place the medical direction before you restrain a patient for any reason, seek medical direction. Now, again, this may be protocols, may be written offline, but we do need protocols or something laying out 
our, our restraint. Again, the law enforcement should be involved when we restrain a patient or transport without consent or if there's any threats of violence. Again, they can help protect us from injury and they serve as credible witnesses as if needed as well. If the law enforcement, if law enforcement places them in protective custody, and in Texas, again, like an emergency detention, the police officer is responsible for that patient. They should go with us and with that patient in the back of the ambulance to the hospital. That is especially true if the patient is handcuffed. Our most protocols, most SOPs, I wouldn't say protocols, but most SOPs are if the patient is handcuffed in police custody, law enforcement has to go with the patient in case we need something happens and we need to get those cuffs off the patient quickly. Law enforcement should ride in the back with the patient, but they should not be involved in patient care. False accusations. We may get accused of something falsely. Best protection against this is that we document carefully and completely, document how the patient was behaving and the statements that they were making. Try to have witnesses, if at all possible. And one way to kind of help limit false accusations is if practical and possible, use providers that are the same gender as the patient if possible. If we think that's going to be a possibility, she's just the patient, the male, the female is acting bizarre, and we think we're going to get a false accusation against us, then try to do what we can to mitigate that. Same sex or same gender um, provider, pay very close attention to cameras, the the cameras that are in the back of the truck, whatever the case may be. So in summary, psychiatric emergencies may result from a psychiatric disorder or from medical or traumatic conditions. Again, there is potential of violence, so that does place us at risk. We can only physically restrain a patient if they're an immediate threat to themselves or others. And again, if we have a patient that is extremely suicidal, that says I'm going to kill myself, but is willing to go to the hospital with us, since they are cooperating, we don't have to restrain them. Behavioral emergencies can involve legal issues of consent and refusal as well.